to the third um, in a series of, of climate talks roundtable discussions here at Valley Library. Um, my name is Joseph Robertson, and I'll be moderating the discussion later on. Um, I just wanted to thank um, the, the co-sponsors of this event, um, namely Valley Library, um, also the Center for Peace and Justice Education, um, the Villanova Center for Liberal Education, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, uh, the Philosophy Department, and um, also the Cultural Studies Program. Um, and I just want to give a little bit of background on what today's event is about and why this title, Utopia or Oblivion. Um, if you follow the, the you know, climate crisis, you probably understand the meaning, but the, the words in that title actually come from a book uh, written by Buckminster Fuller. Um, and it really collects a series of, um, of lectures that were done in the 1960s to try to make people aware that civilization was perhaps beginning to uh, burden itself with unsustainable practices and that there was another option. Um, so to just give some background to why he chose that title, what it means, um, his premise was that throughout the history of human civilization, um, we've had the, the technology, the know-how, and the resources to provide um, comfort and security for about 1% of the population, so the ruling class. And that by the mid-20th century, maybe we had advanced far enough that we now knew we could expect to provide that for about 44% of the population. So that's how we were able to begin thinking about a vibrant middle class um, in the industrialized democracies. But 44% is not enough to get over that that ancient problem of fighting over resources, where all political structures are organized to fight for what little there is. And so his premise was that we needed to change the way we thought, because in fact, if we were using our resources more intelligently, if we were doing the best science possible, if we were always living on the cutting edge, we could easily provide for 100% of human beings to live at a level of comfort and security far beyond what even emperors 200 years ago could have dreamt of. The problem was that we were organized intellectually not to do that. Um, so basically his premise is, if we get to a point where we're overusing resources beyond the Earth's carrying capacity because of waste, inefficiency, and because of this need to organize, organize ourselves politically not to share, to make sure that what our political structures and our economic infrastructure is about is achieving and maintaining control of resources instead of making sure that they're actually distributed intelligently. Um, that we would reach a point, a critical moment, where the carrying capacity of the Earth would no longer be viable. We would get beyond what is sustainable and our civilization would face what could potentially be a worldwide collapse. Um, our current situation in terms of climate is one story, but there are all kinds of details that feed into that. For instance, 1.5 billion people right now suffer chronic, severe hunger, not just intermittent hunger. Three billion people lack reliable, persistent access to clean drinking water, right? That's nearly half the world's population. Grain stocks are at roughly 70% of annual, or 70 days of annual consumption. Um, this means that if we cannot produce grain, we have enough to feed the world for 70 days and then no more. That's one of the lowest levels in the last 100 years, and it's been a persistent problem over the last several years, because over the last 10, we're not producing enough grain to feed the world. So we're tapping into those stocks. And we're also seeing an unprecedented depletion of arable land, 
in northwest China, in uh, Indian river basins, in northern Nigeria, even in California's Central Valley, which is one of the most productive agricultural regions in this country. The way that irrigation has been done has led to such salinization of the soil there that we're now looking at the possibility that that region could face the same kind of collapse that ancient Sumeria had, which would be foolish considering how far we've come since then uh, in terms of our scientific know-how. So Buckminster Fuller's grandson put this book in context in his introduction to the 2008 edition with this, uh, with this telling of the story. It has become harder and harder to, to avoid the recognition that we are in a full-scale planetary emergency. For example, scientists suggest that if the trends continue in the dramatic melting of the North Pole's ice cap, it could be gone completely within five years. That was 2008. Yet even as we become more aware, it can be very difficult to move fully out of denial about our predicament without the cognition that there is a future scenario where we can turn this emergency into an emergence of sustainability for all life on Earth. So, what do we know about what's going on with the North Pole? That situation is advancing. Last summer, we had a summer where the North Pole was ice-free for a period. So that scenario is playing out, and we're not necessarily organizing ourselves to deal with it um, civilization-wide. The, the idea that Buckminster Fuller was trying to bring forward 50 years ago with this series of lectures was that we can move from weaponry to living where instead of devoting our most advanced scientific research to building ever more robust and efficient weapon systems, we could devote that to building ever more robust and efficient living systems so that the way that our whole economy functions is at the threshold of the most efficient, the most ephemeral, the most uh, resource uh, light uh, method possible. Um, so this is going to be part of the discussion and later on we'll get into what some of those sort of highly ephemeral, highly efficient resources might be. Um, but first I want to introduce the two faculty members of the panel and then we'll have the student section um, later. Um, Dr. Paul Rozier is going to present first. Uh, received his PhD in American History from the University of Rochester in 1998. He serves currently as Associate Professor of History at Villanova where he teaches uh, American environmental history, global environmental justice movements, global environmental history, Native American history, history of, the American, of American capitalism, and world history. He served as program chair for the International Sustainability Conference held at Villanova in April 2009. In 2006, he co-edited an international volume called Echoes from the Poisoned Well, Global Memories of Environmental Injustice. His new book project examines 20th century Native American environmental activism and education. He presented preliminary research findings at the Common Ground Converging Gazes Integrating the Social and Environmental History Conference um, in Paris in September 2008 and at the American Indian Workshop in Graz, Austria in April 2011. And in fact, he's just back from, from that trip now. Um, and then Dr. Justina Satrio will be presenting right after. Uh, is Professor of Chemical Engineering at Villanova. Um, in addition to being an educator in chemical engineering, Dr. Satrio is also involved in the newly developed interdisciplinary MS program in sustainable engineering. Prior to joining Villanova in August 2010, Dr. Satrio was a research scientist and program manager at the Center for Sustainable Environmental Technologies at Iowa State University. He holds a doctoral degree in chemical engineering from ISU 
since 2001 and has an extensive research experience <coughs> in reaction engineering, applied material and uh, catalysis development, chemical plan and process design, and process techno-economic evaluation. He also has several years of industrial experience as a chemical process engineer. Um, originally from Indonesia, a country blessed with biomass resources, Dr. Satria's research passion is in developing technologies for utilizing biorenewable materials for, the producing, uh, for producing energy, fuels, and chemicals to reduce our reliance on non-renewable carbon-based resources in sustainable ways. Um, and without further ado, um, I'll let Paul Rocha take, uh, take the mic. Thank you. Can everybody hear me? I'm not used to speaking to a microphone. I, uh, thank you, Joseph. I, if I could just take a moment to plug the Earth Day activities that really uh, are going to kick in next week. This is the first uh, event of a week of Earth Day activities, and I, I chair the Earth Day committee, so I feel compelled to, to promote it a little bit. But uh, most especially next Thursday night at 7 p.m. in the Connolly Cinema is going to be a presentation of uh, a film about climate refugees. So I think it really uh, corresponds nicely with our theme today. It was nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, it didn't win, but it was still named one of the top five documentaries. It's a 40-minute documentary. We're blessed to have the filmmaker here showing the film and also answering questions. So Jennifer Redfern will be with us. And then uh, on Friday, we have a farmer's market outdoors and presentations on research. So there's a lot of good stuff going on next week. Uh, we want to think about this as the beginning, really a sustained conversation that uh, started with the first round table the last semester. So I wanted to talk about um, some things that I've been wrestling with, not only as a, as a scholar, but as a citizen. Um, I've been very interested in the ways in which American Indians have tried to assert uh, their understandings of environment and their religious beliefs into this uh, uh, increasingly global conversation, just thinking about what Buckminster Minister Fuller was trying to articulate. American Indians have been thinking about the these kind of dimensions for quite some time because environment for them matters differently than it does for most people. And I'm, I'm just going to sort of work within the poles of the 1971 Crying Indian commercial, which helped to uh, publicize American Indian beliefs um, in a kind of way that stereotypes them. You know, the, the term ecological Indian suggests that all Indians have some special knowledge of the environment. Well, I think that they do. They have a particular history that's worth taking note of. And, um, one of the themes that I've been, been uh, uh, developing is that American Indians believe they have legitimate ideas about environment because they are especially sensitive to changes in the environment, especially when we're talking about indigenous peoples in Canada and Alaska, where on an everyday basis they see their environment changing before them and having to adapt to it. So they have a, a particular set of data that, that a lot of scientists don't, um, don't acknowledge, and I want to come back to that theme. But this is a, a, a commercial or a promotion for the American Indian College Fund that you can find in the New York Times Magazine that promotes the idea that thinking Indian has value today, that it isn't a traditional or a pre-modern thing, that it has value in today's modern scientific context. Um, so I want to sort of flesh out some of those themes and, and bring us to the uh, 21st century where American Indians have internationalized these ideas. I first want to say that environmental justice, which is what I'm talking about, is, is something that, that uh, affects people of color predominantly. But the point about climate justice is that it affects all of us. 
But, we, but the starting point for climate justice is environmental justice, which says that people of color experience environmental degradation in especially troubling ways because they are targeted through environmental racism. Their communities are targeted, uh, and they are rendered voiceless by virtue of uh, institutional racism. We can think about um, Latino uh, farm workers in California experiencing the brunt of what Rachel Carson talked about chemical contamination of the human body, which becomes the very first environment that we have to pay attention to. Uh, African Americans uh, clearly have been dealing with environmental justice problems. Uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated the day after uh, participating in a strike uh, by garbage workers who believed that their work environments were unsafe. Uh, they wanted better conditions that would mean that they wouldn't go home with diseases and injuries and so forth. Environmental justice became uh, in the 1980s, and what we have here is what a lot of historians say is a kind of kickoff for the environmental justice movement that marries civil rights tactics to new conceptions of public health and human environments. Um, and environmental justice is based upon this idea that environmental racism is at the heart of uh, struggles for justice for people of color. Uh, environmental justice says that um, environment is not a, um, a wilderness area, it's not a national park. The environment is where you live, where you work, and where you play. Kids in Love Canal, New York, were coming home with uh, burned feet from their playgrounds because of toxic waste dumps. Uh, children uh, were developing lead poisoning in their houses because of environmental hazards. Uh, sanitation workers, factory workers were, were dying of... Uh, lung cancer or uh, other kinds of dis in, in, um, occupational diseases. These were not uh, occupational hazards, they were environmental diseases that were not regulated. Uh, Native Americans are going to be experiencing these conditions, uh, but they are going to add a, a, another level of understanding to environmental justice, uh, which I wanted to give you this uh, definition here. The federal government in 1994, as a result of all of this civil rights, uh, environmental justice activism, uh, created an office for environmental justice to try to uh, police uh, the practice of environmental uh, racism. Um, Native Americans are going to add a new dimension to where you live, work, and play, and that is where you live, work, play, and pray. And the reason for that is the centrality of environment and resources in creating and sustaining cultural identity that are linked, that are tied to very particular places in which people can practice particular rituals. Uh, so we want to think about sacred geographies or sacred places that have meaning beyond the, the rocks and the trees and, and the natural resources, what is under the ground. They are particular places where people maintain themselves. The story for Native Americans really starts after World War II with the intensification of development this is a famous picture from the 1950s. Uh, a native uh, group has, has found out that they've lost their land to a dam that is being built to produce electricity for growing white communities. Uh, this is a pattern that, that uh, takes into the 1960s. Um, we also find that American Indians are being targeted for their uh, engagement with rivers and lakes and so forth. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, for example, American Indians have fished for salmon for centuries, and the salmon have helped to shape their diet and their culture. They call themselves salmon people. So if they lose the right to fish, 
there is no more salmon people. And what they did was they began to counter the harassment by um, uh, police, uh, state game commissions who would tear gas, arrest, beat up women and children and so forth. All we have to do is think about Selma, Alabama being transported to the Pacific Northwest. We can think about what Native people were dealing with. They had a difference. They, Although uh, African Americans had the Constitution, these uh, Native people had treaties in their back pocket that said, the government says we're allowed to do this. Um, so they went on, uh, uh, pick, uh, on, on marches. Uh, they said, we, we defend the country in all kinds of ways. Uh, this is a scene from 1970, looks like Vietnam. And in many ways, this story is about Vietnam because the federal government understood that if it couldn't honor its uh, uh, treaties at home, then it had lost all international standing. So in this sense, American Indians are waging environmental justice through civil disobedience that in many ways mirrors what African Americans would do uh, several decades later in their own environmental uh, struggles. Uh, here's just another example. This is in Wisconsin where Chippewa Indians would uh, fish for walleye or muskies using a traditional method. Uh, they were attacked for having special rights. Um, and uh, these are some actual protest signs. These are from the 1980s. So this is a fairly recent event where American Indians are dealing with environmental injustices, being deprived of access to an environment that sustains their identity and that is also protected uh, through legal means. This is a kind of genocidal rhetoric that um, that feeds into American Indians' sense that their geographies are being targeted for hazardous waste dumping, for uranium mining and uranium dumping and so forth. So um, this is not an 18th century or 19th century problem for them. It's a modern problem. I wanted to, to give you one other particular place um, because of its uh, centrality in shaping a national discourse about environmental justice. Black Mesa is uh, a Coal, a strip mining area in um, central Arizona. Uh, by the way, Villanova sends students to a little uh, Navajo community called Tehachi. I've been there a couple of times. And when you drive in from Gallup, you can see some of the uh, periphery, on the periphery, these strip mining areas that just completely uh, dig up the earth. And for American Indians, this is a, a sacrilege. Uh, and in fact, this slide gives you a sense that for them, this is not just about mining for a, uh, for coal or uranium. Um, strip mining is strip mining at children's church. This is where Indians pray. Um, so this is a this adds a religious dimension to Buckminster Fuller's uh, argument, um, in part because American Indians are, are some of the first to argue that we can uh, use wind power and we can use solar power. We don't need to mine, we don't need to dig into Mother Earth, because once we dig into Mother Earth, we are setting into motion a process of uh, environmental devastation about which we don't know the, the result. In fact, the Hopi, um, this is a Hopi woman protesting, the Hopi will say that their prophecies say that once we start this acceleration of, of environmental degradation, the, the prophecy says that uh, Mother Earth will die, that we have to think of Mother Earth as a living being that can, in fact, die. So uh, Black Mesa creates a, uh, a sense of activism on the part of uh, Native Americans that continues today. Here in uh, 2010 is a protest against clean coal. Native Americans have 80% of the nation's uranium supply, and uh, they are being targeted for coal mining and water 
their resources are being extracted to fuel electricity for Denver and Los Angeles and so forth. They consider themselves to be living in a national sacrifice area. But more importantly, I think, they have formed all of these different groups, environmental justice groups, that are sending a message, taking their message into national and international forum. Uh, I gave you a handout on the 2002 uh, Bali Principles of Climate Justice, which is based on the 1991 First People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit in Washington, you see that brought together all these different uh, people of color to think about their common experiences and common uh, um, common strategies and so forth. And, and I, I just wanted to, to lay this out briefly to let you know that this is part of a con continuing story of American Indians engaging these global environmental problems. Uh, and in the interest of time, I'll um, just mention briefly a couple of other uh, meetings at which American Indians will attend to again share their traditional knowledge, share their perspectives, and share their concern for the global ecosystem. In part because they are very sensitive to the way that ecosystems change, and they have they have borne the brunt of environmental degradation to sustain uh, what people would consider to be progress. So these are uh, actors, uh, Native American activists, first in Stockholm, Sweden, the Hopi, and the Navajo come out of the Black Mesa crisis and they say we need to spread the word. They go to Stockholm, which is the first international um, meeting on uh, global environmental crises. In um, Salzburg, Austria, I was just in Austria talking about this uh, meeting of the World Uranium Hearings and uh, basically their message is, you know, we have something to say and if we're going to survive as a, as, a, as a species, we need to, to, to share our knowledge. Um, and then uh, in 2002, the Principles of Climate Justice that, that brought together an incredible coalition of groups, the Indigenous Environmental Network of North America is the most prominent American Indian group that seeks to cross borders and uh, share common experiences and to express the notion that this is a, a global problem in which the South, the so-called developing world, is bearing the brunt of northern Indulgence, as you can see here, this sort of obese figure who's been fattening up on the resources of other people um, in the South here on a kind of periphery. Uh, so it's a, it's a message of religion and it's a message of citizenship. Um, the most recent uh, gathering has been uh, in Mexico, at which you have all of these different leaders from 71 Indian nations who again share their common experiences. Uh, and assert the need to heal Mother Earth with the marriage of a traditional uh, environmental religion with sort of um, scientific conservation. They're not opposed to science, but as this quote um, from a leader from Alaska suggests, scientists are not willing to move outside their boxes and consider different data. And uh, to me, this speaks to the need for interdisciplinary uh, approaches to sustainability that Villanova is putting into motion. We have a new minor in sustainability studies that deals with engineering and geography and the humanities and so forth. So we need to think creatively out of the box to address very complex problems. Um, the other, uh, the last quote I want to leave you with is uh, this uh, quote from a, a member of the Diné Nation in Canada who again um, offers not only that we are suffering but we want to contribute to the solution. It is very obvious to us all that the climate is changing. They live with it on a daily basis. Um, so they are they are going out to these um, associations. They are publicizing their, their beliefs. 
um, and they are participating in what I would call sort of an environmental patriotism that transcends their own particular places because of the way that each particular place is linked to these larger global ecosystems. Um, so that's it in a, in a kind of a rush, the kind of things that I'm interested in developing is not only environmental, American Indian environmental philosophies, but the ways in which they try to reach across disciplinary, geographical, racial boundaries to, to reach uh, sustainable solutions. Thank you. It's a very open, eye-opening uh, presentation about this American Indian uh, this, uh, environmental justice. And I think there'll be kind of a preamble for this. My talk is more into uh, a little bit of technical side on this, uh, probably on that's why we we are working what we are we are doing now in terms of uh, utilizing our earth and into our needs and uh, why we are destroying uh, our environment, but because of what happened. So. What I want to talk is about why we are doing that. So the talk is about is our carbon and energy needs and cost of emissions. Okay, I start with these pictures. What is one thing in common with these pictures below? When you see these pictures, what do you see? We have these urea, plastic bottles, airplanes, gas station, cars. Yes, they are all driving derived from oil, yes, very good, because they are all derived from carbon, and from and the carbon is derived from oil. All the other picture uh, slides are either manufactured by using materials synthesized from fossil fuels or operated by using fuels derived from fossil fuels. At present, our lives are dependent on fossil fuels, particularly uh, petroleum and coal, and the means of those non-renewable resources keep increasing. Why is that? I want to talk a little bit background of growth and versus degradation. We are living in a growing society in fast pace, very fast. Growth. The world population is increasingly urban. See on this picture, we can see that this, uh, the world population uh, from now until 2050 will increase from 6.9 billion to more than 9 billion. 98% of this growth happening in cities and in the developing and emerging world. You can see that this is uh, the blue color, the purple color here uh, in the less developed countries, developed region, and this blue one is the rural is uh, keep decreasing, but then what is the developed countries, they are stagnant. You see that the, the largest development is in the developing countries, like in Asia and in Africa. What's next? The, the population in this world becoming richer. Is uh, currently more than European Americans, they live in a Western world. There's a dream for many people in the rest of the world. Asia is growing very, very fast, and you can see that the, the middle class 
increasing this is in 2005 400 millions and in 2050 is predicted to be 1.2 billion so it will be around let's see 15 percent of the total population and the big increases in this uh, in this purple here is in the east asia china in india indonesia so about 800 million people will join the middle class what does it mean and uh, consumption will increase so people becoming richer and we can see here is that global economic power is shifting today's uh, economic powers are in united states european countries and uh, in canada but now it, you can see here in 2050 it's that china is becoming the the big player of, of, of overcoming uh, united states india is the, the third one and then brazil mexico russia indonesia while this uh, japan is currently number two now will be kind of like behind the kingdom germany they are behind all this growth are good but not without cost the cost is what degradation greenhouse gas emissions will keep rising is it is projected that if from today's to 2050, greenhouse gas emission grow by further 52% of that to in 2050. The possible impacts of this greenhouse gas emission is an increase in global temperature and then leading to increased heat waves, droughts, storms and floods and resulting in severe damage to key infrastructure and crops. So if you see what's going on in nowadays, you can kind of wondering, okay, a lot of things going on around the world, and is, is, that, is that a sign? You can see here that what is the cost of that is uh, in the, the rest of the world here is uh, in the blue color here, and then uh, the cost of uh, it is a uh, brick country this brick is uh, the, the four countries who are improving economically very becoming very strong brazil russia china and india they will release this uh, greenhouse gas emission very large these oecd countries are just uh, the developed countries there are 34 of them they're pretty pretty much stagnant but then the developing countries they are the cause of this greenhouse gas emission Now, degradation, because of this, the, the big number of population increase, and then also the big number of the middle class coming, people becoming uh, more well-to-do and able to consume more. And the result is uh, utilization of the, the, the goods, the resources, and then the land, and then water. For example, these uh, people living on water, uh, stress by, uh, is increasing. This is uh, the developed countries here from 2005-2030. They're pretty much constant here. This is this color is based, uh, based on severity. This is uh, the, the purple one is the very severe and then to the right here is no no stress at all. But then you can see there's a big increase in the big country Brazil, Russia, India and China and so the rest of the world so it's increased quite rapidly. So there's an issue.
So what is the cause of this uh, greenhouse gas emission increase? You can see because of the increase of population and the increase of the wealth, you can see here that uh, the greenhouse gas emission increase is caused by the increase of energy consumption that is in developed countries and in still developing countries from 1990 to 2035. It's currently, is uh, developed countries are currently uh, utilizing more of energy, but then these developing countries are increasing and in 2035 it is yeah, much larger than developed countries. And United States currently is the largest uh, user of energy consumption. Currently in this, uh, until 2009, this is the, the black one, is United States utilizes about 20% of the, of the energy consumption. But then overall, it's compared with China and India, China is the, the largest increased user of the, of the energy consumption, is will, will pass is already uh, in 2015 will be about the same with the uh, United States, but then will be increasing very fast. And then the utilization of fuels by type. Currently we are still utilizing petroleum fuels and we are worrying that the crude oil will will be depleted very soon, but then yet the, the prediction is that we still relying on that. And then coal, we are still utilizing coal, pretty much so, and then natural gas. Okay, we stop using renewables uh, resources, but still low, and then nuclear. You can see that the liquid fossil crude oil, coal, and natural gas, they are all non-renewables. And as long as we are still utilizing this, and then cost them the this, the greenhouse gas emission CO2 will still be a big problem. And apparently, the, if, you talk, if you're not doing anything, and then the problem will increase. You can see this also, the world electricity generation. In 2007, we are utilizing about, this about 17 trillion kilowatt hours in the world. But then uh, it will be double in 2035, and we are still relying mostly on this uh, in the coal. That is the this the orange one, and they plan to increase using uh, natural gas that is also renewables. But then still we are still relying on coal and then uh, petroleum, and so those are still producing this greenhouse gas emission. So, the increase of population and expansion of middle-class economy uh, globally, our growth is good, but this growth causes increasing use, uses of lands and resources will result in the degradation of the quality and the quantity of those lands and resources. So that is an issue. So what are the alternatives to reduce this greenhouse gas emissions? How about, how about reducing the energy demand? Well, uh, tell that to the world, a growing middle class. So, you know, in so many years, this middle uh, people in the rest of the world see 
people in the United States, European, in European countries, they live you know, very nicely. And then so they want to be like you know, the same. So they want to be middle class as well. So if you ask them to reduce energy demand, it's very difficult. So the option is not, not feasible. So this is a kind of strategies that have been proposed by this uh, uh, Princeton uh, Economic Institute. It is, uh, there are five strategies in four categories, how to reduce greenhouse gas emission. Top one is energy efficiency and conservation. So we already start doing that. Doing a full switching and then changing from a fuels that uh, originally still temple that coal and we try to replace that with uh, fuels that is more environmentally friendly. So carbon dioxide capture and storage as an option, that's technology that is being developed. And then uh, renewable fuels and electricity. So utilize producing electricity and fuels that are from renewable source sources wind energy, solar energy, and then bio-renewables. Forest and soil storage. So, uh, reforestation. Uh, so, planting more plants to regrow forest. That's an option. Also, uh, nuclear. Although, what happened in Japan maybe make people, a lot of people kind of, okay, uh, think about that, but then, when it works properly, it's very safe. It is uh, it's very clean energy. <coughs> the goal of this 15 strategies is basically in order to reduce the uh, emission of greenhouse gas from this, if you're not doing anything, by 2057 in we are this, the world will release about 16 gigaton of carbon per year. And then, in order, currently we are, the world releasing about 8 gigaton of carbon per year. In the, so between now and then 2050, in the, in the, there's a 50 years of fission, is that we do not want we want to cut this, the possible of increase of this, a double of the, the carbon emission. So how to do that with the, if we're not doing anything with the growth of population and the growth of economic, we will release this 16 ton, gigatons, and then we need to do something in order to keep our carbon emission at level of eight gigatons. So that's the goal. One alternative is uh, this replacing non-renewable resources with bio-renewable resources for our carbon and energy needs. So I have a strong interest in that because of this is my area of expertise. That is, uh, an alternative is that using a biomass resources, our biomass, for example, for transportation fuels, here that is from uh, in, in Iowa, I, uh, I just moved from Iowa uh, to Villanova here, and uh, use a uh, so the corn stover from this uh, corn plant, and then how we utilize that into into uh, into uh, transportation fuels in a sustainable way. So why is it biomass? So it's, uh, there are many sustainable resources. There's sunlight, wind, ocean, hydro, geothermal, nuclear, and all of this 
uh, renewables. But then from these resources, we can only make electricity. So from this electricity, and then we can produce hydrogen, and we can store it in batteries, and then we it for running your car. So uh, if we can develop cars with uh, strong battery capacities uh, with electricity, uh, then that we solve the problem. Uh, but then, until today, we are still relying on liquid transportation fuels, uh, gasoline, diesel, and then it will take quite maybe many more, many more years before this combustion engine can be replaced. So until we can replace that uh, entirely, we will still relying on liquid transportation fuels, gasoline and diesel. And the only one, the only uh, renewable resources that can be used to produce these liquid fuels are biomass because it has carbon. So among sustainable resources, biomass is the only resource that produces carbon, which is the primary chemical element in transportation fuels. So until our transportation systems are no longer energized by liquid fuels, we will continue relying on carbon-based resources. This is kind of an example of this uh, U.S. energy consumption, what is in this country, because we live in the country, so we care about this country. And in the U.S., uh, currently in 2008, we are still using about 37% from petroleum, and then 24% from gas and coal, about 22%. So about three-quarter of energy uh, consumption in the U.S. is coming from non-renewable fuels, and about 7% coming from this uh, renewables and then I see mostly about this biomass. So currently, uh, renewable energy contributes only about 7% of the total energy consumption. About half of this renewable energy was supplied from biomass. This is only about 190 million dry tons per year. How much is the biomass capacity in this, uh, in this country? Uh, U.S. is blessed with uh, bio-renewables materials. So uh, in the U.S., the total potential is in excess of 1.3 billion tons, so about 21 petajoules. And currently, uh, we only consume about 10% of the, what is the potential. So the production of biomass resources depends on the variety of economic, social, political, and internal factors which influence the decision in allocating lands for biomass production. So uh, and again, we have to utilize it in a sustainable way, so environmental factors are very important in this context. What are our biomass resources? We have grain, that in Iowa we use a lot of uh, corn to make biofuels, and then dedicated crops like switchgrass, and then uh, miscanthus, uh, and then crop residues, and forest thinning, so, and then lodging from urban wood, and then uh, from manure and from agricultural process so we can utilize those and then from uh, milling residues there are a lot of biomass that are potential to be used and uh, but there is a, a lot of challenge in that is that uh, how to utilize the system is uh, a, lo a long process there's a from biomass production biomass pretreatment conversion and utilization we in order to be able to utilize biomass properly we need to make sure that we maintain the quality of our resources. That is the land, this is for biomass production. When we take biomass from the soil, the quality of the soil will, will degrade if we, we're not maintaining it properly. So when we take biomass, the nutrients that is from the plants will be taken away. So we need to be able to return them 
to the uh, to the soil. So uh, how in order this process to be efficient, we need a lot of sunlight, water, energy for fertilizer, liquid fuels, and then thermal energy, electricity. Then how we want, and this currently we are relying on fossil fuels. So how can we reduce the, the reliance from fossil fuels on this and replacing it with renewable uh, resources? Can we make fertilizer from renewable resources? Can we make our electricity, our thermal energy uh, from renewable resources? So that's the question in how to make the utilization of biomass becoming proper. So I want to close this, uh, uh, my short presentation about, with this picture. Is currently, if we are not doing anything, in 2050, uh, the way we live, we will utilize about 2.3 of Earths. That is means that uh, currently at this time we only using we already over overusing our Earth. That is in order to the way we live it right now. What what 1.3 Earth, and if we're not doing anything, we will be coming 2.3. So the goal is that how can we reduce that to maintain in the next 30 years so we can live comfortably but yet with still utilizing our earth in with the rate that we're supposed to be so that's the food for thought thank you um, while we're while we're transitioning to the next um, presentation i just want to make a, a couple of points. Um, I think that that last idea that by 2050 we could be using two and a half Earths worth of resources um, is exactly the point of what we're talking about in terms of unsustainability. Obviously we can't do that. So the pressure on every aspect of civilization from doing that is going to be immense. Um, so these are the kind of things we're trying to figure out how to solve. And I think both of these presentations which were very thorough, I think, and gave us a lot of food for thought, and also some really good ideas about where we need to go. Um, both had in common this fundamental idea that the environment is not something that's out there and that's other, it's everything. And so the main problem we face is how do you contain anything that you do that involves the environment? Can you contain the impact of using carbon-based fuels? Can you contain the impact of using uh, radioactive uh, fission, right? So this is something that science doesn't exactly know how to do. Everything we do does in fact flow out into the environment. And so what our student panel is going to be talking about today are two different um, cases in which this is the actual problem. is exactly the fact that things are flowing out into the environment or that our overuse of resources is somehow undermining our future ability to use those same resources. Um, so I just want to introduce um, the two members of our student panel. Um, first is Michelle Velez. Um, she's a freshman environmental science and Spanish double major working towards an honors concentration. She hopes to spark further awareness of environmental issues as group leader for Villanova's new chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby, a national nonprofit organization that works toward achieving uh, legislation that will lead us towards a sustainable future. She also works to address environmental issues on campus as a member of the Communications Subcommittee of the President's Environmental Sustainability Committee. Um, and she dedicates her time to Special Olympics, um, the Fall Festival, and um, 
also as an evaluations assistant on the 2011 Special Olympics Committee. Um, and I'm just going to introduce Dan, who's going to speak after her now. Um, Dan Neiman is an electrical engineer, and uh, he's looking at a minor in environmental studies. He's also a member of Villanova's chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby, um, the Villanova Environmental Group, VEG. Um, he's also a member of Engineers for a Sta Sustainable World, the President's Environmental Sustainability Committee, and a member of the Environmental Learning Community. So now um, I'll pass the floor to Michelle. Hello? Okay. Great. Thank you all for coming. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me onto this panel. Um, so what I'm going to introduce today is just a general introduction about um, uh, incident <coughs> happening in the Midwest uh, with water resources. Um, the depletion of the Ogallala Aquifer. Water resources are obviously a very important aspect of uh, society and our entire civilization revolves around using these great quantities of water. And there's a specific aquifer um, in the western or midwestern United States that is in grave danger of being depleted in the near future. So um, I start with a quote from Benjamin Franklin, we know the value of water when the low runs dry. And that's just introducing this whole topic. So what's an aquifer? Um, for those of you not familiar, it's an underground bed or layer using groundwater for wells and springs. So since the climate is so dry in the Midwest, the, their real salvation um, in the 1920s, they found that they could dig underwater into this, and access this well that would provide a seemingly unlimited resource of water um, for all the farms that, uh, and agriculture that's in that area. Um, the well itself, uh, or the aquifer itself, was formed over 20 million years ago, um, and it ranges in thickness from less than a foot to over uh, 1,300 feet. And it, it underlies much of the Great Plains region, which is Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, and Nebraska, which is essentially the breadbasket of the United States. Um, so it's serving the agriculture for a very significant um, food source from America. Um, and if you, s uh, just a fun fact, if you spread the aquifer, if you took it out of the ground and put it across the entire, and put it like on the land, it would put a foot and a half of water across the entire continental US. So it, just to get an idea of how big it is, but that it is limited. Um, so why is it important since we're using uh, over 90% of water comes from the Ogallala, irrigates one-fifth of all U.S. cropland. Um, and here in the picture you can see the crop circles. What makes it so important is that um, the, like, the land around it is so dry that without it, you can see in between the, the circular irrigated areas, you can see how dry it, it is. And that you have these patches of green and, and cropland and then there's just barren land in between. So really without the use of this aquifer, there's no way to grow crops in the way that we're doing it in this area. Um, cattle uh, relies really heavily on this um, water source. Eight to 10 gallons per livestock per day um, are used from this aquifer. And if drained, it would take more than 6,000 years to refill naturally. Um, and an economic uh, problem with, associated with this depletion is that $20 billion a year in crops depend on this aquifer. So since the 20th century advancements allowed us to tap into it, we have greatly expanded agriculture and really um, have 
uses area as a great center for agriculture in the United States, but it's really dependent on this one aquifer. So we're depleting it by consuming it at a rate faster than it is being refilled. Um, for the past 30 years, we've been taking it out at a rate 10 times faster than that natural rate of recharge. So this causes not only the problem of it running out, but also if you have a smaller amount of water, you increase the amount of pollutants in it, the concentration of the pollutants increases. So now you have like less water, then you'll have higher um, degrees of um, all the fertilizer runoff that comes from the plants and all the um, runoff from the streets that go around the farms. So it's not the healthiest water that's getting to the crops anymore now that as you start to deplete it. And just the general um, misuse of water and inefficient use, 70% of the water never reaches the crops. So they're taking it out of the ground, but the, the way that they're distributing it across the crops is not as efficient as it could be, and so a lot of it is just wasted. Um, so what should we do? Um, the suggested and most um, feasible, I think, uh, alternative is something called sustainable development, which is defined as development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So the big cultural and kind of mental thing that needs to change is that we should stop treating natural resources, such as water, as a free good, as something that just kind of miraculously appears out of the ground and could come out forever and ever. Um, it has a finite quantity, and we should treat it as something that is um, valuable and is limited. Um, and ways to do that are to find ways to produce the wheat crop, um, which is one of the crops that's very dependent on this aquifer, um, to use less water to pr produce these crops and less chemicals that pollute the water that it needs to produce these crops. Um, and combining economics and environmental issues is another key part of this. Um, people often have the opinion or the misconception that the two are not um, uh, are not able to be brought together, but that's not true. Um, if current practices continue, it would gradually become too expensive to pay for access to the Ogallala as pumping costs increase. So sticking with our current plan is not feasible at all, even economically, because when you start to, um, it becomes more expensive to take it out as the, start, the levels become increasingly lower, so that's not an economic uh, benefit either. Um, uh, the, so, so some specific uh, alternatives to water conservation are called contour strip cropping and integrated pest management. Um, so contour strip farming is uh, planting different types, so like a polyculture versus a monoculture. A monoculture is when you have just one crop over and over again. A polyculture is when you combine different crops that use different things in the soil, different um, uh, different uh, nutrients, and give things, different things back to the soil so that you have a more sustained um, and healthier soil concentration, soil nutrients um, in the area. That's not just you're not just totally raging the land or deriving the land of that one nutrient with that same crop over and over again. Um, and also in creating more uh, grass waterways that form natural drainage to slow the water from running off, and so you increase the efficiency of the water you're putting on these crops. Um, integrated pest management is ways that you use less insecticide and pesticides um, for uh, managing the pests that will um, always be in agriculture. Um, but there are ways that you can 
introduce other uh, animals or other organisms that would eat those pests or um, more um, less harmful chemicals or less, um, con less straight concentrations of chemicals. Um, so there are multiple things that we can do or that the agriculture industry can do to <coughs> limit not only the way that they're using the this unsustainable way they're using the aquifer, but also decrease the pollution that they're putting in the, into this aquifer through um, as it runs off and goes into the groundwater supply um, through these sustainable development uh, ways. So that's just an introduction. Now you know what the Agolala aquifer is and how uh, it's in a very sticky situation. So thank you. a similar topic, Michelle touched on it a little bit, um, is water pollution and what we're doing to our water that we have accessible. Um, so what happens basically is from our water, when the rain comes down, it picks up all these chemicals such as de-icing salt, bacteria from our waste, as well as the pesticides that we use for our crops. This runoff then either runs into the sewer system or into our rivers. And that's a major problem for us because sometimes even in the sewer systems, they find their way into a river then. Um, a lot of this problem comes for someone that benefits from the river further down the line. Um, so I'll talk about this first. Um, rainwater collects, into chemi er, collects chemicals. This is the process. Um, collects the chemicals, and then water then runs into the streams and rivers. The chemicals soaked up into the water are dispersed into large bodies of water, and then dissolve the ox oxygen in the water, making it difficult for animals um, to survive. And then the contaminated water then evaporates and comes back down to the earth as rain. So it's a continuing cycle, which is very hard to um, get rid of once it's started. So here, I find this a very interesting map. On the left is what we normally see for a map. On the right is what it actually looks like with most of the rivers and streams. Um, and so I find this so interesting because this is a map of Iowa. And so major corn producing state, these a lot of chemicals. All of these chemicals, or most of them, are washed into these rivers, and then a majority of those rivers then lead to the Mississippi. Um, once they travel down into the Gulf of Mexico, it's becoming increasingly hard for fishers down in Louisiana in that area um, to fish and to survive in their business because so many of their fish are dying from the pesticides and chemicals being used up in Iowa and Illinois. So I feel like this map really shows the interconnectedness of our states um, and how one problem, which you would think is fairly remote, affects people quite a ways away. And so finally, what can we do to help? Um, we can, of course, start using 
less chemicals such as fertilizers and salts, um, and try and move toward, in an agriculture standpoint, try and move toward a more sustainable agriculture um, in our society. So we're using less chemicals um, and using less resources that can later come back to hurt us. Um, another interesting idea that I found is plant what's called a rain garden um, with native plants, which will help absorb the amounts of rainwater and disperse them back into your local area. We actually have um, two of these on campus, um, which are very cool to see. Uh, Villanova's doing testing um, to see the rates at which this water is dispersed. And instead of allowing it to enter the sewer system, it's acting as a natural watering system for part of our campus. Um, and we can also support sustainable and pesticide-free agriculture in our markets, um, at a farmer's market or in the supermarkets where we buy food. And so that's my talk. wanted to start off the sort of question period, if any of you have questions, with a couple of questions for everybody to kind of exchange ideas. Um, one is, in terms of justice, environmental justice, the effect on, you know, neighboring communities, um, the depletion of, of a fossil aquifer that can't be replenished, um, how would that fit into the, you know, question of environmental justice or of wider planetary climate justice? Um, we don't have an easy solution to replace that water. Um, that's a great question. And uh, part of part of what I didn't really talk too much about today was the way in which Native, speaking about American Indians, I mean, American Indians consider themselves uh, citizenship in American Indians. And they also consider themselves indigenous citizenship citizens who have linked their experiences and philosophies to people all over the world. Um, they, as tribal citizens, they are semi-sovereign nations that also own resources, for example, in Colorado uh, and in the Southwest, there are tremendous struggles over water that the Navajo or uh, other Indian groups claim uh, as a result of treaties. So these are resources that they themselves are invested in and maintaining. We think one of the things about uh, climate that we're trying to understand is, you know, out in uh, Colorado, uh, the Colorado River is fed, so we can think about water as coming from below, but also coming from above. The, the central role of snow melt in feeding the Colorado to sustain people's usage of that body of water. The Colorado and the Oglala are two critically important uh, bodies of water. Um, with global uh, temperature change, you're going to have less snowmelt, you're going to have less water in the rivers. Um, so that kind of drying effect is going to affect all these local um, sources. And, and, and one of the things that, that I was trying to um, hint at is that American Indians have a much richer history, at least in this uh, country, in, the, in this geography, and that includes um, uh, s stories of um, societal collapse in, say, the Anasazi. Uh, they have memories of, of deprivation from resources and so forth. And so they're, they're much more sensitive in creating these kind of environmental philosophies that, that 
don't consume too much and so forth. So that's part of their contribution is to say we have to slow down, we have to think creatively about alternatives and so forth. But when it comes to critical water, you know, um, there isn't much that you can, you can't substitute you know, biomass for, for water. Um, that, that's, a, that's a different crisis. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a, a problem of doing more with less is one of the ways that you can kind of deal with some of this, is if everyone can do more with less, then those problems, we're, we face those problems not quite so soon, at least, or we have time to, to deal with them. But the traditional model, and again, this is part of what the, the Fuller book kind of looks at, is that the traditional model economically, scientifically, is to actually do more in places where there is less. So take water from a place where it exists and put it somewhere where there isn't enough, and eventually that model multiplies and we end up with just less everywhere. Is that what you're, you're getting at? The, the, if there's reduced snow melt, then that is the ultimate impact that it doesn't just affect the one community. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what Native Americans would, would have to say. If for anybody interested in water in the West, there's an article available online called The Future is Drawing Up that really sketches a future in which poor, uh, rich communities are going to buy the water from farther. So we're going to be building, you know, instead of transportation linkages for fossil fuels, we're drinking, building transportation linkages for water, which will become even more valuable than oil. Um, so I'm, I'm not really sure I answered your question about how environmental justice, but the idea of climate justice, I think, is a much broader concept uh, because it, it, it gets away from this idea that people of color are experiencing environmental degradation to say that we're all experiencing it slowly in different places. Uh, and at some point, we're not going to be able to use one form of currency, which is money, to uh, purchase another form of currency, which is water. Okay. Um, and then, Justinus, I wanted to ask you also, um, in terms of some of these problems that may have a chemical origin, whether it's you know CO2 emissions or whether it's you know fertilizer and pesticides, those kind of things, are there chemical solutions to those problems? Are there, is there a way that some of those uh, resources can be redirected to other uses so that they don't actually contaminate the environment as much? Or is it not possible to do that? Well, that's a good question. And uh, about whether it's possible or not, of course it's possible. And then uh, just take for example, fertilizer, and is uh, there is an option of organic fertilizers and then uh, inorganic fertilizers. There is uh, organic fertilizer you can derive it from manure, from uh, by doing uh, this uh, using uh, worms, for example. Uh, the issue is that okay, because uh, the need of uh, our food increased rapidly. And this organic fertilizer is no longer uh, sufficient. And uh, first then we introduced this uh, uh, synthetic in organic fertilizer, uh, urea and then ammonia. And uh, those are derived from uh, fossil fuels. This carbon from carbon derived. Uh, they make uh, this uh, from fossil fuel or natural gas. And they make, they make hydrogen. And from hydrogen make ammonia. And then ammonia make uh, uh, urea. And of course, then, as long as uh, our resources are coming from uh, these non-renewable uh, resources, and uh, some of this emission, greenhouse gas emission, issue, uh, so 
one way to discuss uh, that I mentioned in my presentation is that in how uh, this relate to the production of biofuels or uh, uh, this utilizing uh, bio-based uh, bio products and bio utilizing biomass, biomass then we need to grow more biomass and then we need more fertilizer. But then how can, uh, the question is how can we produce fertilizer that with the resources coming from the biomass itself? So maybe we can make a urea that is the carbon coming from this biomass resource. And then, of course, then the study, okay, can we step back and then can we also going back to utilizing this uh, organic fertilizer? That's the question on that. So about possible <coughs> or not possible, it's possible. But then, again, it's a business rule. And then uh, why is uh, biofuels, for example, it is uh, very, uh, uh, is, uh, is very strong. It's uh, the possibility to use that. But then, Gets related to uh, economy and then also some some work is politics that uh, what is there is a will so where is the will that is going on and so it's all related so okay uh, thank you for that it sounds like you're saying that to some extent chemical science can contribute to making our economy more sustainable but the focus is not necessarily on doing that that there's still perhaps more of an emphasis on the business side of it and not an equation between the long-term economic outlook where that would be the smartest investment of our resources economically. Uh, there's still more of a sort of bottom line approach. Uh, well, our economy is driven by, of course, then a business. And then uh, and I think what makes it uh, more interesting or uh, is not only about this uh, uh, non-profit organization or uh, government that did we call, but then the economy is driven by uh, by private entities. And if you can see that, for example, Walmart, uh, they they uh, uh, an example of how they uh, realize that if they can make money more by make system is every on the supply chains is very tight and try to save money, save energy. In some way, although you know, the, the goal is business, making money, but then indirectly they also save the environment by making it more efficient, energy efficient. So when I think when um, private entities try to start to see that okay, there's opportunities uh, that to uh, that is on the bottom line, and then they will go into that. So how to make this? Uh, uh, our environment is uh, as something that is uh, everybody will be careful about it. How to make it? Okay, how to think about that as from as a, not only for but okay, as a common cause, but also seeing people who be able to support that financially to make it moving to become interested in that. So that's how I think that how to make it more exciting and more. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to ask uh, Michelle and Dan to maybe tell us a little bit about how that might be happening with a younger generation. If there are things going on on campus that are actually promoting this idea, not just the idea that you know we need to take care of the environment, but that it's actually smart to do these things, that that's the smartest way forward, what you might be involved in or, or what your ideas are. Um, well, 
both of us are in the environmental learning community here uh, for freshmen, and so that's just opened us up to the fact that there are many people from all different backgrounds who are all interested in the same concerns and who all see the need to move uh, into the future with these new ideas, um, knowing that it's something we have to address and that we can't just continue to make the same mistakes that we've made in the past, and we have to uh, change somewhat of the, the culture and the mentality as well as the system and the economics of it, um, but that in the end it's all for um, the continuation of society as we know it. it. It can't really continue if we don't start to make some of these changes. You want to add to that? Okay. <laughs> okay, um, does anyone in the audience have any questions for anyone on the panel? utilizing biofuels is that uh, compared to okay from fossil fuel is that both we release the same uh, the same uh, greenhouse gas that is CO2 will be the same but then the idea is on the on the resources on the uh, fossil fuel basically you taking out this uh, this fossil fuel coming from under the earth and then releasing it and then process that and then Combust it and then release it to the atmosphere, CO2. So the carbon that is stored in the earth is becoming released in the atmosphere. And with biofuels, is that we utilizing this from uh, from from plants, from uh, uh, renewable plants. And when these plants, they are eating, uh, they're growing by taking out uh, by taking out CO2 from the environment. So the idea is that if we utilizing this biomass, and then we Process that, and then okay, this and then this are making fuels from this biomass, and then CO2 is being released, and then as long as we keep planting uh, biomass as the feedstock, and the biomass will absorb the CO2. So this is the idea of becoming zero emission, and uh, because of this uh, this cycle, so that's the, the, the ideally. Also, of course, then we can uh, theoretically we can also make the process becoming uh, negative emission. That is. Uh, Part of the, in the process is that uh, not all the carbon that is from biomass in the process of making biofuels released to the atmosphere, but then we can produce what is the uh, byproduct of biochar, and this char that contains nutrients can be plant uh, put back into the soil. So in one way we do uh, two good things: that is, uh, is the CO2 that is released absorbed by the plants, but then the, also part of the process produce this char that can be put back into the soil. So because of that, that uh, uh, the amount of CO2 that is being released in the atmosphere is becoming much less and less. So that is a good thing. That's, that's the idea of biofuels. Okay, I thought I had heard that the, maybe the emissions were just slightly lower, but that's a helpful Yes, but the key is that as long as in the process of this making biofuels or in planting that we're not using more of uh, fossil fuels uh, to, to, to all the energy from, for the transportation, for the fertilizer. I think that's the big criticism in the biofuels that, okay, in the uh, growing this plants, this corn, you use a lot of fertilizer, you use a lot of fossil energy. 
so they've done a good thing. And to some extent, there's some truth to it, but then the efficiency of this, uh, simple, this making ethanol is becoming uh, so good. So actually, now we use uh, less of uh, uh, the, the current technology, we use uh, much less of uh, fossil energy compared to the energy that's produced in producing ethanol. So ethanol is still a good thing, not the best, but then it's pretty good. Is, has there been a change in the, I guess, participation of Native American communities with regard to what the government is asking of them? And is there knowledge that dates back, you know, centuries before, I guess, modern Americans were here? So is there a sort of, as the environmental movement becomes more integrated in government, as science becomes more integrated in government and making policy, is there a change in, in the leadership in going to these communities so that they can learn more? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I know that under Obama, President Clinton was the first president, modern president, to visit a reservation. But that, that was really mostly tied to the, the, the incredible poverty that was uh, there. Uh, president Obama um, opened uh, his doors to uh, sovereign nations to try to create a more government-to-government -government relationship. Um, but I don't know if, if the government has paid attention to some of these environmental philosophies or builds it into any policy making. Uh, I do know that um, American Indian governments, as they achieve more sovereignty in part from some of this activism, they develop relationships with the Environmental Protection Agency so that there was a dialogue uh, emerging. Um, and I know that uh, their promotion of uh, wind and solar energy has sort of reached this level of dialogue as well so that um, part of it may be that uh, it, I wouldn't say the government, maybe scientific, could could utilize Native American space in um, in employing these technologies. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, part of the, part of the problems that the government in the 80s and the 90s was intent on storing nuclear waste, so it was an adversarial relationship. So a lot of tribal governments don't trust the government in in that respect. Um, the most indigenous peoples are trying to work through these indigenous forums, say through the United Nations, in part because of this mistrust of the U.S. government. So, um, I think you know the scientific community has been really slow to uh, incorporate the indigenous perspective, in part because they don't see it as having uh, any kind of value in terms of data. Uh, but when we think about sustainability, this panel of students, faculty, engineering, you know, I think it's it's just part of. Um, part of what sustainability has to become. I don't know if that answers your question, but in a, in a way, no, not unofficially, but through the assertion of Native uh, beliefs in their right to determine how their space is managed, they have forged these relationships, which may have you know, some um, subsidiary effect. Um, I just wanted to follow up on that. that I think sometimes the question of how can indigenous perspectives relating to the environment fit into science, the work of scientists, is a bit slippery for a lot of people. And I think the, the point there is about what the aims are, right? That if you can integrate an indigenous perspective that's friendlier to a sustainable relationship with nature into the aims of scientific research, then you can change the output of that science to actually achieve some of those goals, to, to function as if that was a reasonable way to live as human beings. Um, but the, the friction is sometimes between 
aims that don't integrate that view um, and the struggle to to make that view heard in the scientific community. Is that in the, do you think that's part of it? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of hostility between indigenous people and scientists in part because they have been used as passive objects. Archaeologists, for example, or anthropologists will go and study and do very little in terms of respecting the, the, the native people consider to be the and um, we, we had another question over there. Did you? Oh, and I have a question for Dan and Michelle about um, kind of the social communications aspects of these issues because I think a lot of us who are a little bit older find that um, for a long time in the U.S., talking about these subjects in uh, you know regular conversation outside of the classroom or outside of a conference or a meeting can be tricky. Environmental issues have become very politicized in the U.S. and oftentimes it's, it might not be considered polite conversation. And I'm wondering what you two think about how that's developing in your generation. Um, and I know sometimes in the classroom people refer to friends outside of the classroom here at Villanova or from high school who do not have interest in environmental subjects or who are skeptical. But my question is, I wonder what you two think about how comfortable it is or isn't to talk about these topics, about the need for change, about the seriousness of problems with various friends, other people of your generation, who might not have this as a primary interest. Um, well, just the first thing that came to mind was I went on a service break trip this spring break to Sumter, South Carolina. And while I was here, in Villanova, getting ready for the trip and talking to friends and just getting situated in my freshman year. Basically, the people that I surrounded myself with, I unintentionally didn't realize this until I went to Sumter and saw um, like a different perspective. But here, I don't see, it's, it's very comfortable to talk about these issues with my friends and with people I'm in classes with because they all seem to have the same sort of mindset. And yes, there are some people who are slightly more on the fence than others, but it's it's not as as strange to talk about it in everyday conversation. Whereas I went to Sumter and I started telling people I'd met there that I'm an environmental study, an environmental science major, and they're like, and I, I just, I forgot that that reaction existed. So it's it's just funny that, I mean, I, I was talking to um, the one who was the leader of the Habitat group in Sumter, and he was joking around and saying like, oh, what should I do? I was telling him about the chemicals and dry cleaning. He's like, well, what should I do about dry cleaning? So he could call me dry cleaning girl. And it was like funny, but I was it just kind of struck me that like there are people who have different issues that are focused in their lives. He's worried about creating houses for people who don't have homes. And it kind of was a, I saw the the big the the realize the realization that these issues are all connected, but it's hard for people to see that they are. So everyone focuses on the one issue that they're seeing as the most important most important at that moment. Which I mean he does great work and I was so great to grateful to have been part of Habitat, but it's just interesting to see that in the whole cycle kind of gets lost in these individual issues. Like our issues are related, they, um, like the pollution in the area is like related to the income and everything is connected, but people see the individual problems, so it's hard to talk about the whole cycle. But that was my personal experience. Um, I suppose I don't have a story like that, but as Around here, it's easy to talk about because a lot of kids are pretty keen on the idea of sustainability. 
um, and working to um, maybe not on the levels that some people are thinking, but they're willing to recycle, they're willing to, um, you know, make an extra effort, a little bit of an extra effort to make a difference. Um, but what I've run into back home is a little different um, when talking to some of my parents' friends and such. When I tell them that I'm planning on being an electrical engineer and would like to get into um, renewable energy, they say, oh, that's a great business now. They talk more about the business aspect of it as opposed to um, what it intends to accomplish. So I feel like maybe what people see as the focus um, between generations is a little different. Depends on the person though, right, Paul? <laughs> I think at some point people will get it that uh, the green is the green and there's no difference. I mean, it's, uh, this is, but this, this is the, the problem we've had at Villanova. We've been trying to push an alternative energy and uh, we approached it from a moral component, but um, you know, it's also a, uh, a financial component. It's an investment. Uh, I think that when we get that gestalt shift, then I think we can start getting to some of the stuff that Bucks Minister Fuller has been talking about. You know, once we breach that uh, economic divide, we can't afford to do it. Well, we certainly can't not can't afford not to do it. Um, and uh, anyway, I think there's I think you know I see the same kind of shifts talking to to folks. It's a it's a good investment now. You can buy into a, 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 a mutual fund, but. It's a different kind of investment. There's a material and a moral investment, and once those two come closer together, I think we're going to be making a lot of progress. Yeah, I, I think that's a, the fact that it's not that someday in the future these things will be economically viable or will be a good investment. That's already the case if you see the long view, um, because all the other ways of doing things are becoming unsustainable, not just environmentally, but also in fact. And that means economically unsustainable. Um, Stephen, did you have a question? Yeah, I had a comment about uh, water and environmental justice that we started out with. Uh, Michelle, when you were uh, summarizing your presentation, you pointed out that, uh, that water is a, a precious resource that can't be taken for granted, which I understand and agree with. And But in light of an idea like uh, um, clean air and water is a, is a natural human right that, that uh, human life can't even begin without clear, without clean air and water. I find it kind of unnerving to, to state that water shouldn't be thought of as a free good because that brings into that brings into the commercialization of, of uh, natural resources that, that are really, they're not just resources for, say, transportation or something, but life can't go on without them to begin with. And so I'm wondering if anyone has a comment about commercialization of these impressions. Uh, specifically air and water because we see water as water becomes as clean water becomes uh, less available uh, harder to come by we have uh, switch in some places where there's no water available to bottled water which is not a free resource and will become an economic issue that some people won't have access to and some people will become a privilege thing the other environmental justice issue. Right, that's a great point. Um, when I was talking about free water I I was trying to get at the fact that we we think of it as un, unending. Like we think of it as it's just this resource that is so vast. Like if you spread it across the entire United States, it's one and a half feet. But 
but it's it's a finite resource. So that's what I was trying to get at with free. I agree those points are this very um, it's it's very unsettling to think that water and air could be something that um, is only for people who have the privilege to purchase it, which should not be the case. Um, and that's partly why um, if we continue um, depleting the aquifer as we're doing now, water will become more and more expensive to get it out of the aquifer. So that kind of relates to that. Um, if we continue the processes that we're on now, that issue will happen. So um, I'm not sure exactly what should be done to remedy this, but that's one of the, the yeah, definite one of the issues. It might be more ideological. Uh, as human society goes in forward into the future to, to, uh, to consider that, that uh, not having access to clean water is not an option for anybody. I, I don't know how feasible that is, but that's a different principle. Yeah, I, I think what you're pointing out is that there's a tension between the economic desire to turn things into commodities that can be used to make money, and of course if something is vitally necessary for sustaining life, what could be more valuable? And so there is an economic interest in using that resource to capitalize on people's need for that resource. But the, the sort of traditional way that societies have organized around water is that it should be available to everyone. And so we have this idea that it's free. And in wealthy industrial countries, we overuse as a result of that. So the first response is to say, well, if you're in one of those societies, you shouldn't think that this is a free resource. You are paying for it somehow. Um, but then I think there has to be a layer of, of policy, probably on a global scale, that says, and yet we cannot turn this into a commodity so that only the wealthy can have water. Because that would obviously run against all of the concepts of democracy and human rights that, in theory, we're supposed to be moving towards. There's, uh, just thinking about the indigenous again, environmental justice, there are tremendous pressure on uh, water resources that are you know, sustaining indigenous communities and, and they're being commodified. Uh, I, I can't remember the specific places, but uh, Finland, for example, Sami people. Uh, so you have these, you have large corporations that are, are buying up property that contain fresh water. And I think that's a trend that's going to continue. So this has to be mediated through the United Nations. And, uh, and I think there have been various working groups. And every year there's a new study on, on uh, fresh water supplies and who has access to it. So there are mechanisms in place to study it. But what we're talking about here today is in part about you know, a change in discourse or a gestalt shift in thinking about um, uh, uh, what a resource is, who gets access to it. Uh, we are still fighting against this corporatization and commodification urge that, as you say, is going to become even more uh, uh, appealing to to some uh, to some groups. Yeah, I, I think I just want to add to that that there is a, an approach that makes this a simpler question, which is to take the idea that people can be investors who put capital into something and derive economic benefit from it, and say that's fine and that can liberate populations, but it has to come after stakeholder consideration because there are stakeholders who are invested, whether they know it or not, in the outcome of a given activity. So the United Nations system is trying to do that. They're trying to move policy in that direction where that's the first consideration is whether stakeholders who will be impacted have a say. And I think that's maybe a solution because then by taking care of those needs, it, it tempers the reflex to, to commodify something that's life-sustaining. Um, are there any other questions from the audience? Um, I, I don't so much have a question, but more of a comment. Um, I'm a grad student here within the chemical
College in my department. And the more um, sustainable talks that I go to, I, I seem to think of the word sustainability as something that is only meant to sustain something for a longer period of time, as opposed to um, keeping the earth self-sustaining. You know, it's just meant to prolong something for a little sh uh, longer to just get to buy more time, basically. Um, I think human nature is greedy and selfish at the very heart of it all. And um, in terms of what the scientific community or the cultural community is doing, is um, in it, I think the extent that it makes is just in terms of awareness. And the steps we take, sure, it, it adds a little bit, it buys time, but um, in the future, I think the demand of energy and resources, it far outweighs the, the supply that we have. And uh, it's, it's disturbing to think, because how, how else is the world going to keep up with this ever need 2.3 hours to support the way we live now and how our efforts are not matching up to that quick rate that it's... It sounds like you're saying that sustainability as a concept is a nice concept, but that it's too modest. It's too modest a goal to say that what we're doing now should, instead of being wasteful, destructive, and abusive, should be sustainable. And therefore, we should do mostly what we're doing now, but in a sustainable fashion. And you're saying that's not an ambitious enough goal to deal with the future demand. Does anyone have any, any insights? Well, it's true. And uh, it's sometimes you think, OK, it's, uh, what's going on is it's just too much. But then, personally, I think I'm hopeful that is first that the good thing is that we realize that. So, First thing that when we start to realize, okay, we are living uh, beyond our mean. That's a good thing. You know, sometimes with people who live on debt, they never realize it, and then they just continue spending, 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 and, and not realizing it. But then once we realize it, that okay, we have problem, and then we start to take, okay, take step back, and then let, okay, let's organize, and then think about it, what did we done, and I think that it's a, it's a global issue, although it is right now is something like a, in silos there, here, there, 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 but then over time I think people all will realize that this, this is going on, and then uh, we talk about this younger generation, and I'm hopeful about that, is uh, well, you, I know you are doing, uh, try to teach elementary schools, uh, teaching about sustainability, how we live, to, to love our earth, how to manage our our environment, how to uh, so when we start, I, I didn't have that kind of education when I was in elementary school, but then now these children, they are taught about that, so they're being taught about those kind of okay, we need to make you know to, to do to do good things about environment, about to love our environment, how to live uh, in uh, sustainable ways, and then from one area to the other. Your generations, I think, now realize about that. 
and then just recently is uh, I'm this is my second semester here as a professor in chemical engineering and then I'm doing research in sustainability and then the, the response that the students who come to me and want to learn about this research is, is tremendous. Uh, just this week I, I received an email from a high school student in local high school and then she, she read an article about my work and then she contacted me and wanted to learn about this, uh, come to the, my lab to do participants, this, this research about bio-renewable. So it, this, it, I think, don't lose heart. I think we are in the process that is, uh, you know, yeah, uh, we should utilize it too much, but then it's, it's never too late. It's still time. And then, well, we never know about the future, but then I think you now the younger generation and then the older generation make mistakes probably, and then but then you know we are uh, but then we are doing good things as well, and the new generation will come up and then will replace us and then you know, there's a process. So think about the process. So sustainability is a problematic word, but it's the best we have right now that links it to this ongoing crisis. I think we have to assist. The idea of sustainability reminds us constantly of the fact that there is a crisis going on. So it's, a, it's an active word, and it's a universal word uh, that has so many different dimensions. So, you know, sustainable for whom uh, certainly is a question, but um, I think it's, it's a good way to sort of link a lot of different possible changes. Um, so in that sense, I think it's, it's a viable word, a sustainable word. I'd like to just add to that, though, that um, although personally, I don't really care what terminology we're using as long as it's pointing in the right direction. There is, you know, in the humanities, and sometimes I think we, we do need more dialogue between scientists and humanists, but there is in the humanities a lot of talk right now about uh, bigger, bigger and deeper concepts like mutual flourishing is one that a lot of people are talking about more from a philosophical or moral or spiritual or religious standpoint, but oftentimes the people in the dialogue are scientists as well as philosophers and historians. So there is, um, you know, I think there are interesting discussions about uh, how the language matters, does the language matter, and if so, what other terms might we experiment with? Any other comments or questions on that point? I think that was a great point, and I think it's a very interesting topic. And mutual flourishing may be a way to start thinking about what comes after the raising of awareness about sustainable issues. Um, I think that's all for today. Um, we're going to be continuing this series next semester, in the fall semester, and there are going to be more events involving students, uh, kind of policy-making exercise. Um, and so anyone who's interested, um, please get in touch with um, any of us. You can use the email address um, ideas at climatetalks.info and then we can direct it to whoever is dealing with that at that time. Um, and thank you for coming. And by the way, what we should have announced at the beginning is that there's pizza for those of you who are here. And um, thank you.